0: is the starting Why podcast here we ask entrepreneurs actors investors innovative and artists on the why why they are doing what they are doing what motivates and drives them and why can't they stop we will start in five four three two one hey folks this is joe and you are listening to starting why This is my first interview for Starting Why, so please cut me some slack if I do some stupid stuff here. Admittedly, it may be my 300th podcast interview, but Starting Why is a new format for this. I'm actually trying out podcasting for Starting Why together with Jay. Hey, how you doing? It's really good to have you in this great quality here. Because this is an audio podcast, but we're still making the recording with video. And uh, I can see him smiling in Oregon, even though I'm right now in f- located home in Frankfurt. So that's really good. And what you guys cannot see, he has a lot of stuff behind himself, including stuff like the minions in the bookshelf. And I've seen Midi Yoda, this is the way. <laughs> And I'm sure we'll all talk about all of that. But can you introduce yourself a little bit to our audience? Because you have a very, very interesting CV that we talked about before we even started the recording.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was just saying this to a friend last night. It feels like I've lived many lives just because of how exciting my opportunities to both start companies and to be part of startups One of the things that I learned the hard way is that, especially when you're passionate about an idea, sometimes you can be ahead of yourself a little bit. One of the things that I've had to learn the hard way is market timing. And just because you have a great idea doesn't mean that the world's quite ready for it. When I was young, uh, my dad got me started when I was nine years old running a a campground. And uh, I was making like $3,000 a summer, which for a nine-year-old was insane. And he made me you know, buy all the gas and the toilet paper and everything that I needed to run the thing. So I, I actually did run a business. And at the end of the day, the same principles are true. You've got to have a profit and you have to have a loss. You have to have customers. You have to find the hardest thing is the product market fit to whatever idea you have. But I think the hardest thing I've ever done is what I'm doing right now. And that's to to start to think decentralized, to not look at it as... My little empire i'm building or 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 the team is building, but the way we're going to enable the future that I see is by creating ecosystems where people can succeed. not that we don't need to make a profit anymore, but we need to look at how we make a difference and how we create change and that to me, of all the startups I've done, not that I'm allergic to making money, I just don't measure success that way anymore, and I think that's something for me that especially a lot of young entrepreneurs they're mainly in it for the profit. And I just want to encourage anybody who's looking at startup to look at it for a couple other Ps. Look at it for the passion, the thing that you really can't not do. If you can do anything else, do that. But if you can't not do it, then you probably have the grit and tenacity to be successful. It's something you're really passionate about. And then the other thing is look, look at the people. The hardest thing is to pick the right business partners, but really look at the team that you're going to create and how you're going to help people. I mean, what what is the impact you're going to have on other humans? Those are the hardest things to get right. All the rest of it, all the raising capital and all the things that seem like it's difficult will fall into place if you can get those two things right. Literally, the passion and the people. Because with the right team and the right vision, you can change the world. Sorry, I was
0: just having a few questions and I just wrote them down here. You have seen a lot because you graduated uh, with your second degree uh, when I was still in school and you did a lot of sales of convincing people for everybody out there who's listening to this, who may be a new entrepreneur, who may be an aspiring entrepreneur, who may be a very seasoned entrepreneur, never too old to learn new tricks. Can you tell us how to best sell and convince people? I've personally learned that. Getting a long list of advantages and just reading to them without listening to any feedback
1: is usually the wrong way to do it. Well, actually, you you gave away the answer right there. If you don't listen, you can't sell. One of the challenges that I've seen, because I've trained, now that I think about it, hundreds of salespeople over the years. And um, the guys that actually are in girls and not gender specific on the word guy, But the humans that do the best are the ones that are truly concerned about the other person. And if you're doing that, you listen to their pain points. You find what's actually motivating to them. Because people buy from people. They don't just buy products. And if they're connected to you, then you're going to be able to help them be able to do business with you. And you have to be honest if if you're either too soon or not the right product or whatever. The best sales I've ever made were with people that I'd recommend they don't buy from me. <laughs> say this again, please. The best is The level of trust. If, if you actually have somebody say, no, we're, we're, we don't have what you need. We don't want to have a bad experience. They're going to listen to you differently. And when you do come to them with something that they need, they're going to go, okay, not, not only have you like, built a level of trust. You authentically have trust. That's the thing. The one thing that, and I've watched it with this generation even more no bullshit. I mean, whether it's marketing or sales, people just don't want to be sold. They don't want to be spun. They don't want to hear a bunch of marketing ease or sales ease. That's just, it's not what motivates you. Authentic truth about what it is they need to have happen and what you can do to help make it happen. That's how a made. And I think that's something where I kind of said it early when you're, when you're trying to find product market fit, that's where you're trying to make sure what you're selling fits an audience. And there's enough of people who are interested in buying it that you can actually build a business around it. But you have to listen. And that's the hardest thing. One of the things I do a lot of work with young salespeople on is, is what I call leveling. And the hardest thing for people to understand is communication with another human means that you've got to be speaking in their context. And so if you're talking, and I do this all the time, so I'm most guilty of it, in really technical terms, and these the person doesn't understand what you're saying, communication isn't happening. <laughs> you'll, you'll even watch their eyes gloss over and they'll go, uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, or, or if they're a polite culture, they'll smile and they'll say, yes, yes. <laughs>
0: Or if they're on a phone call, you'll hear them snore at one point in time. <laughs> yeah, that,
1: that, uh, yeah, when, when, you know when they've nodded off. And, and I, I've been on a number of calls where I've lost connection and I've gone on for 20 minutes. It just tells me not listening real well because I didn't even notice that they weren't giving me feedback. But be careful. I, I'll get up on a soapbox and you have to pull me down. <laughs> totally fine. Starting, why is
0: your digital soapbox? But I already like what you're saying. After you've been talking about your take on sales, I would be interested. What do you
1: think about all the influencers? Yeah, so that with two different perspectives. One, I think that I've been teaching this to kids for, well, I apologize. I am old. <laughs> I, I'm sneaking up on uh, 60 years now on the planet. But I'm still young at heart, but certainly uh, have have a little bit of traction there if you look at your education, you look at all of the different pieces you're adding to your person as a human to add value and to create value in other people's lives, a lot of times the thing that gets underestimated is your ability to connect and be connected to other humans. And the reason I say that is that if you recognize how you succeed in life, it's who you know and who they know that you can get connected to. And the reason I put a fine point on that is that influencers are trying to commercialize or monetize their connections, right? And the one thing I'm noticing is that those connections are looser and looser in the sense that people are only so interested in giving their attention to an influencer, as long as they're either being entertained, they're feeling like they've got status, there's some level of... And the number of followers you have is rarely accurate because it's not the number of people that have signed up over the years. It's how many people are paying attention to you at any one time. And that's, you know, when we're, when we start to measure engagement, that's the number that makes more sense. But it's not about how much reach you have. It's how much people hear what you're saying and take action on it or, or are motivated to change their behavior or like we were saying, buy what you're selling. And I think that's something where I looked because I've got the, personality for it and the rest of it, being one of those guys up on stage that's the motivational speaker selling whatever books and stuff and and putting everybody into a funnel and all the stuff that it takes to be a high level uh, global influencer. And I just found it ethically unpalatable to myself that you're exploiting. And a lot of people say, oh, I'm adding all this value to people. Well, yeah, but you're extracting more value usually than what you're benefiting, especially when you start doing speaking gigs at you know, 25 to 50K a pop. And I mean, I'm I'm talking about these guys that are pulling down tens of millions in revenue. And, you know, that was what I was profiling for. And I just couldn't get my heart or my passion to align with that. So when I say about the influencers, I respect what they're doing. But in many ways, I think it's a transitional piece of all the things that I think AI is going to be able to replace. It's going to be the, the influencers today.
0: Ha, and yet another great quote for promoting this interview. <laughs> You're talking DeFi before. Uh, we'll get to this pretty soon. But first, we've been talking about you had several stops on your way to an entrepreneur in sales and would have found very interesting just from the name is president and founder of Thin Air Design. How did you come up with the name?
1: Well, I'll tell you this. I, I like to think of myself as a bit of a branding guy because we, we said, well, where do people think they get the best ideas? Because that's what we were in the business of selling. Well, they think they come out of thin air. So we wanted to become Thin Air Design because then, and, and after that, there was the book and everything else that came out. It turns out that when you go to a bank or you sit down with an attorney and you call yourself Thin Air... <laughs> they think it's uh fly by night <laughs> that, you're, that you're not actually going to be a, a corporate citizen that, that participates in the world. You're just going to disappear into thin air, right? So it didn't always work to our be- benefit as a, as a corporation, but it did work to get people not thinking about, you know, cause a lot of the advertising and design firms at the time sounded like law offices, you know, Edward Johns and so-and-so. And, and it was like, or John Smith and And I I know there's a bunch of jokes there I'm going to not go to. But part of the challenge we had was to get people to look at, because we're in a very small town. uh, You have to understand, I live in Eugene, Oregon. No, it's not at all near Portland. I have to drive two and a half hours to get to the Portland Airport with traffic. We live right in the middle of a very large state. It's a beautiful place. Please come visit, but go home. (laughs) We have enough uh, humanity here already. But it's a, it's a college town. And uh, if you're familiar, familiar with uh, Nike shoes, it was started in Eugene, Oregon. Uh, their headquarters are now in Portland. But the CEO of of Nike has uh, been investing in the university as, as alma mater. And uh, we now have the world's most uh, state-of-the-art track and field stadium. We've got uh, one of the nicest in all of uh, American football college stadiums people will sign up to be on our team just because of the locker rooms are so nice <laughs> and that's the little college town i live in right since it was provided more or less directly
0: by nike does it look like their uh like the logo this swoop
1: this i don't know if you've watched the olympics but if you did you and you'd see anytime they were covering the trials for track and field for the americans they were showing because it's just such a beautiful place to film they're showing our stadium. It actually looks like a Quidditch field. <laughs> it, it doesn't look. Anything, I mean, it certainly has that swoop in it, but you know, it looks like a, a futuristic stadium that you'd play Quidditch in. <laughs> uh,
0: we may add for everybody who doesn't know that Quidditch is the game at Harry Potter games where they fly around on the brooms and try to catch multiple flying objects that look like balls, and they're big ones, they're small ones, and I'm very confident even the creator of Harry Potter is not totally clear on the rules of Quidditch.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know that because uh, you're flying on broomsticks to go after these uh, flying balls. It's an interesting thing when you're ideating the concepts right in your business. So. I've started 12 new ventures and and my wife was like, yeah, those are just the ones you count. (laughs) (laughs) I've actually had 21 businesses in my life, but the ones that have been incorporated that have other people at play, started a computer company when I was still in college, the same day actually Michael Dell did, learned a lot. It was only a quarter million dollars in debt by the time I was done. But little things, what was interesting is I was up by that much two weeks earlier and I'd gotten caught up in a in a volatile market that I had no clue would turn that quickly. Kind of like crypto. <laughs> but, you know, the probably, and I say this a lot, I've learned more from the from the companies that, and I don't say failed, but that I didn't have what I call an exit from. I didn't have a liquidity event than I do from the ones that I did have the big upside on. And one of them in particular was a franchise restaurant uh, that I did, which was a theme restaurant. I don't know how much of those you have where there's all this uh rainforest cafe type of thing where there's this environment that you get inside of that takes you to a different place. And that's what theme restaurants do. And uh we were reinventing burgers, fries, and shakes. And, uh, of course, we had Meatless back in 1998, and we had... uh the best smoothies on the market, and we had really healthy uh, potato product. Not a lot of people. It turns out the reason you pick a place to eat based on uh, service and uh, cleanliness and, and quality of food and all the different healthy is about fourteen on the list as far as your preferences. So the fact that we'd gotten healthy nailed and we were Jamba Juice meets uh, Baja Fresh back before those ever existed. Those are franchises in the United States that have made a actually. Chipotle did as well. They they've made their brand around healthy eating rather than just fast food. So we're a little ahead of the market on that one. But I learned so much about franchising and operations manuals and all the lit- time I've spent with lawyers because it's a very litigious model that you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you probably shouldn't buy a franchise because you're going to have to work inside a box that's tight enough that you're probably going to get really frustrated. And as an entrepreneur, I swore I'd never do another franchise. We're doing a franchise. Uh,
0: <laughs> By the way, one question. For dining out, I assume even before Corona, uh, number one of the list had to be uh, proximity,
1: convenience to get there, right? Yeah, no, definitely traffic pattern. When you, Why are there so many Starbucks on every street corner around the planet? Well, because if you're going to work, you're going to go into a drive through a different way than if you're coming home. And so the traffic analysis that goes into location planning is huge. It's one of the reasons why if a particular franchise shows up in an area, everybody knows, oh, that's a good location. We need to be around that because McDonald's and Starbucks and these guys spend tens of thousands of dollars of analysis to figure out what the best location is. I mean, not that you can always draft off of the other locations, but frequently that it's just indicative of what's going to be a good selling spot. And then you founded Garage Games. Yeah, actually, I was a founding partner, but I I came in a minute after they started. So I'm always careful they already had a marketing guy that didn't work out. (laughs) So I was I was the second. Before
0: we get into Garage Games, because that's going to be pretty interesting. I would be curious what made you leave or shut down thin air design
1: and get into uh gaming. I can tell you in one word nine eleven our agency had about thirty percent of its buildings in hospitality. we had about another twenty percent in in other industries that were impacted by the terrorist attack, and our company was done. There just wasn't I'd already started to uh work with garage games before. So one of the, one of my liabilities, I call myself a massively parallel entrepreneur. And it's not just because I'm distracted by the shiny, but because I really do enjoy, uh, helping other entrepreneurs and doing a lot of advisory work, et cetera. And I'd started to look at games because, oh, our agency actually did a lot of work for a company called Dynamics. And before I went to Garage Games, I was, on contract the brand manager for two franchises that that came out from Sierra Online. Both educational technology products. I did a a game called The Incredible Machine, which is now in the top 10 of all-time educational technology games. A game that wasn't really a game, it was just a simulator, like a flight simulator, but it was a driving simulator called Driver's Education. And it taught kids how to drive a car on a computer instead of inside a 2,000 killing machine. So that was a lot of excitement. I, I got the chance to build a franchise. The difficulty is in any big corporation, where do you hold something that you is a unique product, was evergreen. We were making money every year, but didn't fit anything else in the market that they were doing. And so uh, it just wasn't one of the new sexy, exciting AAA first-person shooters. So it got lost in a reorg. And uh, to this day, it's a billion-dollar opportunity that nobody else has done yet. I see, I see. It's very hard to teach in Germany because you guys have much better driving instruction over there. Here, we just put a kid in the car and say, hey, go. (laughs) So yeah, getting into Europe is going to be a hard thing.
0: Actually, I can tell you that there was some adapting I had to do before I was actually feeling good about driving in the US. Uh, For example, the school buses, you don't know that here in Europe, that you always can take a right turn, even though there's a red traffic light in Germany, you can lose your driver's license for doing that. And what totally screwed me up are those intersections where all four streets meeting have a stop sign. I was totally confused <laughs> when I first encountered that. What? Well, 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 you, you all got stop signs. Hey, what? what what's going on here? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, especially if you're driving in California here, we call it the California rolling stop. They don't actually ever stop for a stop sign, Uh, (laughs) but uh, always a good idea if you don't want to get killed, but, or actually knock over a pedestrian, that's the bigger challenge. That was an exciting time. The reason I mentioned that one is uh, I actually got the chance to work with all of the retail to take a very large product into market. And uh, I learned so much, just so much about how to do promotion. But the success of that product was built on PR. I worked with what was then the first ISO 9000 rated PR firm because their methodology for getting placement of articles in television and the rest of it was so well designed that it could actually be audited. I don't know if everybody knows what an ISO 9000 rating is. It's a quality certification. I've been working with
0: that back in the days. I've been doing some stuff when I founded a junior consultancy with it. And if I think about it, I still get nightmares, depending on your
1: auditor. German auditors can be very thorough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's the word for it. (laughs) Anyway, the the point was that uh, we were able to generate more publicity for that title. I partnered with Mothers Against Drunk Driving, and I did the first cause marketing in video games. I gave one and a half percent of our revenue from that game to Mothers Against Drunk Driving. And uh, kind of the Paul Newman effect, right? And by doing that, I was able to harness, because you have to understand, we're talking 1998, the internets were just starting to get dial up and AOL was the thing, right? And you had very, very low speed connectivity. So you weren't going to move a lot of stuff around. We were starting to figure it out, but it was still really early. And uh, one of the things that we were able to do, which now we use social media to get, was to partner with all 1500 chapters of the mothers against drunk driving and get them to be our grassroots movement to tell all of the parents about this and we built a drunk driving simulator into the uh, product which of course no matter how good you got you couldn't win because uh, it just kept getting blurrier and blurrier and then you'd crash so my kids did try to beat the drunk driving simulator did they succeed no it, like i say it you could try, but you, you ended up, because of the way we handled the video and the graphics, ended up sick to your stomach because the distortion of the audio, the video, and the controls that you were doing just made you have uh, vertigo and inertia. And so kids, even who are trying to beat it, ended up almost getting sick doing it. So it was a very effective tool, actually.
0: When people who are sober already get sick from trying it, have you gotten any feedback from people who really got drunk and tried it?
1: <laughs> so we, I put one into the Peterson Automotive Museum. And uh, I actually met Charlton Heston at the premiere of this. He was uh, still alive at the time. And at that premiere, we had a lot of drinking going on. So I got to watch people who were drunk get into the drunk driving sim, or let's just say tipsy, get into the drunk driving simulator, or you know, there are other words, I guess, that you guys use for the same thing. All I can say is that we had a per- an attendant nearby that could get them a sick bag, like you get on an airplane. It was not a pretty thing, and it actually the guy who was having to do that started to test the people and make them walk a straight line before he let them get in the simulator. He didn't want to deal with that. It was the high high end Hollywood crowd. The the Peterson Museum is in L.A. and and uh, it's all of the, I was being interviewed by road and track and motor trend and all the, all the major, uh, and that was another way I got publicity was to, to be sponsoring things that normally only NASCAR in, in our world, in, in the gaming world sponsored. So it was an exciting time. Oh, and I bought a million and a half dollars worth of wheels to bundle with my game or with my training so that you could use a driving steering wheel. Yeah. It didn't have pedals cause that cost too much. It, you know, had little uh, pieces, things you right next to the wheel that you did for breaking. And, and I had a $10,000 signing authority. So don't know how that worked. I see. That was basically garage games, right? No, no, this is the preamble. Sorry, I haven't gotten to garage. No, no, this was me learning what I needed to know about games to actually be in the game business. Uh, I was being so Sierra online at the time had 35% of the market share. They had Well, Blizzard was one of theirs, so StarCraft and all the titles that you think about. But Sierra had a ton of titles back in the 90s that were were very, very popular. King's Quest, and uh, we did a bunch through the studio that was in Eugene. I think the one that got to be the largest was called Tribes. Tribes 3 was the last version of that. It was actually the thing that got everybody in the industry inspired to do, you know, Unreal and Halo and all the different things that we uh, call a duty, etc. now. So it was a very early uh, first-person shooter. But that that's a great segue to Garage Games. So the thing that happened with with games is that the only people who could make them were the ones that could come up with either a million dollars to license a game engine per title or had the talent to sit in a room with like five really best-in-the-world programmers and build their own game engine for, usually took seven years to get one done. And that was the barrier to entry. You couldn't really just go out there and grab the tools to go make a game. Kind of like in Hollywood when the studios own all the cameras, so you couldn't make a movie without going to work for the studio. So we did something kind of radical. We we got the rights because the founder of Garage Games uh, was also the founder of Dynamics that did the Tribes engine. We able to get the licensing to all of the source code to publish the first AAA game engine with source code and we did it for $100. That changed to this date. The first thing I did was start a conference called Indie Games Con. At the time, we were actually coining the phrase indie games and indie developer. Didn't I mean, there was indie bands and indie film, but there wasn't indie games yet. And that's what we did to build the entire movement. There was over 250,000 developers that uh, got our engine and were part of our community. And were learning how to make games with you know what was a very adult, was never designed for just anybody off the street to be able to make games in it. So there was a lot of learning curve to figure it out. And that's actually how Unity beat us. This. They made it very easy to make games in theirs, even though they didn't have the same technological advance. We were always a better engine, but they were easier to use. I actually did a keynote at the BTC Miami where I talked about how ease of use is the secret sauce to winning in almost any technological advance that you're doing. If people can integrate it into their lives, they'll use it. If it's too hard, it just won't get traction.
0: That kind of reminds me of uh, one of the founders, Lukasz Gadowski, that I have interviewed uh, for my other podcast. He says, first get the strategy right. And then get into the nitty-gritty details and make it easy, innovate, make it easy for the people. That That's basically the,
1: more or less the same, the same stuff you're seeing, right? It's interesting because if you look at the products that you have a love for, the intuitiveness of the design and the ability to get in and get what you want done. It's rarely the products that you love are the ones that are the hardest to use. <laughs> I mean, those are those are just not the types of uh, products that get trending. And I think that's one of the problems we have, in, and we can get this later, but in blockchain right now is blockchain is hard and we need to get it to a place where it's much easier. And of course, I'm setting myself up for what we're doing with, with our current startup. But the thing that I, I, and it was a hard thing to learn. I, I learned it again with another startup I did called BitRater. It was actually Netflix for games. It allowed you to start playing a game with only a very small portion of it downloaded. And then depending on what you did in the game, we dynamically loaded all the assets that you'd need to play it. So your hard drive didn't have anything on it, but we knew what you were going to need by what you, if you turned left, we we're going to get all the assets that were to the left. Or if you went to the right, we we're going to get everything you'd see in the line of sight going to the right. And that allowed us to populate the file while you were playing the game. And right now you don't wait for the entire movie to get downloaded to your device before you start watching it. Streaming is about playing it while it's it's being delivered. And that was the same thing we were doing. The problem was to deploy it against anybody's game wasn't easy. It took some custom work. And these guys are busy building the next game or the next chapter in their game, etc. And you really couldn't burden them with trying to integrate a, a streaming technology. And so the fact that we weren't able to just Push a button and then have it work was our biggest challenge with with that technology.
0: And you are the co-founder and chief collaboration officer of Prasaga. Yeah, Prasaga. Mm-hmm. And first, my question is: What is a CCO, a chief collaboration
1: officer? So I've never been much for traditional titles. Matter of fact, I was once written up in the New York Times because I. When I was at that Thin Air Design, I was the time-space continuum director. That was my title Uh, because I always had to try and make deadlines work, right? So I'd have to move projects around to get everything done in time. And then I was passionate champion of driver's education, which everybody was always asking me, what's that? And so, well, it's like an evangelist. It's a slightly broader definition. But Chief Collaboration Officer, I didn't realize it's an actual title in enterprise corporate <laughs> where, where their job is primarily to get everybody internally to work together on stuff. And it's a C-level, C-suite process because it turns out in a lot of large corporations, they don't know how to work together. But my intention with that was I'm all about connection and creating partnerships and collaborating and specifically with a blockchain startup we're we're creating the technology we're going to open source it we're a foundation right we need to get an ecosystem supporting us so what we do the way we do that is through collaboration with with other entrepreneurs other large developers partners that are actually building platforms on top of our technology and so it just felt natural to be cuz i mean the other title i go by is chief marketing officer cmo but and i shouldn't say this out loud but i've met a lot of cmos and I've never really liked them very much. I'm not saying that there aren't ones out there that I couldn't like, but their ego usually walks into the room before they do. And I just don't I don't identify with that particular... Uh, I certainly have the skill set for it. No question, I've been doing this for... Well, I've had to unlearn more than I think most people know about marketing. <laughs> <laughs> Yet another great quote. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, that's the, the challenge. If you're not always learning, and this is something that I, I know at a DNA level the more I know, the more I know I don't know. And that has to be, it's ego-free. It isn't about being somebody. It's about being open to possibility and what's next. All this stuff with social media, it's an evolving thing and it's an organism. And if we think we've got it figured out, then we're probably not paying attention because it's going to change. And that's the thing. If you get too set in your ways, and i I'll be honest, I'm more of a gut guy. Like if I think this is gonna be a great marketing campaign, I don't wait for the data. I, I just ship. But I'm I'm more and more using a lot more analytics to test and make sure that there's the right sentiment analysis and all the all the things that AI can teach us about uh how to communicate to other humans is powerful. But if you don't have the big idea, you don't have anything to test. So it's definitely a a chicken and egg challenge on on are you data driven or are you creative driven is one of the frameworks that people use. But yeah, so I'm, I'm the chief collaboration officer. That was a very short answer to a very short question, right? And
0: now, can you tell us what you guys at ProSaga doing in Estonia, Switzerland, and the US?
1: So we're doing, you know, we started with this thesis that if everybody owned their own data, and they could put it up on the data lakes and get paid for all the AI analysis, instead of Facebook if you have a smart home you can put all your smart data up in the cloud and then uh, be compensated for it that then it give you data autonomy so that the device manufacturers aren't the guys making and it. it's not the the social networks that are making money off of you you're participating directly in the commerce that's being generated the only way you can do that that we could figure out was to do it on the blockchain in order to keep track of all these microtransactions and and know how things were getting used the difficulty we found out once we uh, convince everybody that was a great idea, was that we needed a blockchain that would scale to the use case that we had, because we had very fast message servers. Same technology that binds signal, and it used to be used in WhatsApp for very secure peer-to-peer communication. So we we started looking at all the different blockchains out there, and we found out after investigating them all, at least for our use case, none of them were going to scale to the rate that we needed them to. So we had a very hard decision to make, and it was only made easier by the brilliance of our CTO, who's helped actually build the internet that you're working on right now. And he came up with not only the way to make the blockchain and the way it works, like a parallel processor, so that it could do multiple things at once, but also the fact that we needed an operating system to run the blockchain. And that's our big innovation. We call it Saga OS, just like you have uh, iOS or OS 10 or you know even microsoft windows os we've built an operating system that runs on the blockchain and that's opening up huge vistas of opportunity now so that blockchain can find the full potential that it has as a technology to solve the the problems that the blockchain is going to be good for
0: i'm a non-technical guy here and when you say you have a blockchain os First thing pops into my mind, I have a computer, I erase, uh, let's say, Windows, put it on there and I can do everything.
1: Is that how it will work? It really is. If you think about the blockchain as the largest global computer ever invented, because it's all a network of nodes that are working, we can put an operating system on the network that allows everybody to have access to it. Now we've got a way that we can actually build applications that's much more efficient. And I don't want to get too technical, but since I started in entrepreneuring, we've been saying, well, if we just had this one shared namespace that everybody used for the code that they're using, wouldn't that make it so much easier to inherit all of the functionality that's been built for other applications? And that's really how this is going to work. It's going to have uh shared code across the blockchain. That's going to make it so. Eventually, not necessarily right right as we get out of testnet, you'll be able to pick the most appropriate language that you want to program in. And you're going to be able to figure out what classes or code that's out there that you need to help build your application. And then anything that's unique to what you're doing, you'll have to code that specific part for your application.
0: I see. And what are you expecting people to do with Saga OS? What is the outlook? What is the vision? What is the future? And when you're gonna take over the world?
1: <laughs> well, that's the exciting part: is that everybody else gets to use our technology to take over the world, and I get to just collaborate with them. Thank you. That was that was a great setup. The Saga OS is um, gonna be, for example, we're getting people telling us all the things it'll do right now, and and I'm about to head out to a automotive supply chain conference because one of the things we're able to do is use the blockchain to show the full what they call digital thread or or supply chain evolution so that whether it's the specialty chemicals that make up the rubber in the windshield wiper or it's the metallurgical certification for the bolt that holds the engine on, all of that can now be completely certified and stored as one digital thread for the car that you buy. And uh, that changes a lot of how we are able to, Not only do recalls and regulatory compliance, et cetera, but it changes how warranty work will work, how we'll understand if there is a recall, all the manufacturing that's happened that have that particular part instantly off the blockchain. So we can make safety that much faster by just having that kind of transparency and basically provenance of all the parts. And that's pretty powerful. And it gives a bunch of other advantages, but that's the main thing. So that's what people are saying to us. One of the things, we've got a unique identifier that allows it to be used for voting, what we call governance and regulatory use. I'm working a lot with SDGs, the, the Sustainable Development Goals of the UN, with people who are doing things like carbon sequestration and carbon tax. There's just a matter of fact, the, the difficulty is, what can't you do? That's the challenge, is that there's so many things. And the great thing is, we're not trying to do them all we're just enabling all those things to get done.
0: Like uh, when the app store opened, it enabled uh, companies like WhatsApp, uh, Tinder, Uber, and what else is out there, Snap, Telegram, yada, yada, yada. You guys know that.
1: Yeah, no, and and I think that's the, the best analogy for what we're doing is that just like you had smartphones, but until the app store was launched, you really didn't have all the things you wanted to do with the smartphone. And that really was the tipping point for everyone. And that's what we look at for the Saga OS, is, is to be that opening up of the potential of a blockchain and, and, and having a token that everybody can transact with.
0: And for everybody who'd like to learn more, they can go down here in the show notes and click on uh, Saga on the uh, link, as well as your LinkedIn profile. And of course, we're looking uh, forward to receive some messages whom has taken over the world of your clients, of your users of SagaOS.
1: Yeah, so the the blockchain is called the Saga chain. The token is called the Saga coin. And uh, I think we get to start to talk about all these partners. That's going to be the exciting thing. And I look forward to further conversation. Thank you so much.
0: I'm sure we'll have you back. And then we talk about the whole saga of Saga. Fantastic.
1: Look forward to it. And actually, prasaga means in the Sanskrit, all things connected. So I'm glad to be connected with you and uh, look forward to the next time we get to talk. Great. Thank you, Jay. It was a pleasure having you as guest. Goodbye. Thanks.